All right, pause. Pause the news. Let's take a breath. This is No More Normal. I'm your host today, Marisa DeMarco. Our show's usual pilot, Khalil Ikaluna, is a little under the weather this week. No coronavirus symptoms, though. He'll be all right. We all have to add that caveat now, right? And don't worry, he did a lot of the interviews we have in today's shows, so you'll hear from Khalil pretty soon. For this week, Khalil and I wanted to talk about what's really at stake in this election. It's entirely likely that we will see the Albuquerque stretch dry in October, which is something that hasn't happened since the 1970s when we managed water quite differently than we do now. That's local environmental journalist Laura Paskus talking about the Rio Grande drying up in the next couple of weeks. That conversation is coming up soon. Okay, let's make some sense of it all. There are magic words you can say that just make people tune out, like climate change. During this election, political leaders would have us all believe we reside in one of two big bubbles. Somehow, climate change ended up in just one of them, even though 97% of climate scientists agree that it's real. It's here now, and it's caused by people, by us. That stat about the scientists, the 97%, that comes from NASA. And hey, listen, I get it. It would be cool if global warming weren't real, no pun intended. But no matter which of the two bubbles they would have you live in, you're probably sweating a little more than usual. Your world is getting hotter, or maybe temperatures near you snap all of a sudden, instead of seasons flowing into one another gradually, like they do in your memories. And here's a consequence that doesn't get a lot of attention in the news. People are forced to flee their home countries for U.S. borders or other countries because climate change messed with their crops, their food, and their livelihoods. Yeah, migration is often a climate change issue, too. But remember the power of your vote. We're in this position in part because of decisions that politicians made about pollution, about who controls our dwindling water resources out here in the desert. Reporter Laura Paskus recently published a book called At the Precipice, New Mexico's Changing Climate. Here she is speaking with No More Normal's usual captain, Khalil Ecolona. My first career was as an archaeologist and a tribal consultant. I loved field work. I loved working outside in amazing places, learning cool things about New Mexico and the Southwest landscapes and environments and kind of had some frustration with that line of work. And so transitioned over to journalism in 2002 and kind of kept learning more and more about water and energy and the environment. And I really like spending a lot of time outside. So that's where I'm happiest to be. And I'm most curious. Mm-hmm. It's like a natural fit. So I decided, well, I could work on so many of these exact same issues, but I could write about them for the public in ways that maybe would help make things better if people understand what's happening and understand that they should have a say in what's happening in their communities and do have a say in what decision makers they elect or don't elect. I don't know if too many people are paying attention to the race for the land commissioner as so much (laughs) as they are for Senate, House seats, and obviously the presidential race. Why do you think that these very key important positions, not just in New Mexico, but across the country, are often overlooked when they have such drastic impacts on how we live daily? 
those local down ticket races are so hugely important. Who your city council, your county commissioners, your state legislators. These are the people who are making really key decisions related to things like land use planning and water issues, Mm -hmm. energy issues, energy efficiency. You know, it really, what kind of a community do you want to be living in? Do you want to be living in a community that's actively planning for a warmer future here in New Mexico, a drier future here in New Mexico? Or do you want to be living in a community whose decision makers and leaders are denying science, don't understand the science, or worse, refuse to try to understand the science. Mm -hmm. For me, the big issue really is to understand that the climate is changing. And for New Mexico, that means a warmer, drier future with greater water challenges, higher seasons that are longer. What does the current crop of candidates in New Mexico look like when it comes to climate change and our warmer future? The federal delegation we have right now are all people who understand that human-caused climate change is happening. Much of that congressional delegation is like actively involved in committees and work that's directly related to climate change. On the state level, I'm a big fan of making sure that our legislators are really aware of the fact that energy and water issues are very much in their hands in many ways. Even when our state budget is nice and flush, we don't spend enough money and enough resources on our agencies that are in charge of regulating environmental issues and especially things like water planning. Water planning is such a huge thing that New Mexico should be doing. We should be actively working on our 50-year water plan. What's up with the Rio Grande and all your time covering climate change and the climate out here? Have you ever seen a year like 2020 in terms of the Rio Grande? So 2018 was really awful. 2018, you know, the river started drying in like April. Um, I've never seen a year like this one where we had a pretty decent snowpack. You know, it was close to normal snowpack from the fall till about November. But we keep having and we're going to keep having these warm, windy springs Mm -hmm. that just eat that snowpack. We don't get the runoff that we're used to. This fall is really rotten. The Rio Grande is dry right now in two different stretches, totaling about 40 miles south of Albuquerque. And much of that drying has been ongoing since June or so. Mm. But now what we're seeing, you know, they had to end irrigation season early. And what that usually means is we see the river get low through Albuquerque all summer long as we're really pulling that water out into to the irrigation canals. But then at the end of irrigation season, we're not pulling that water into the canals anymore. You see the river kind of able to bump back up. Now through the Albuquerque stretch, the river is so, so low. I've never noticed it this low in October. I know that water managers and agencies are hustling and doing anything they can to keep water going through the river, but it's entirely likely that we will see the Albuquerque stretch dry Mm. in October, which is something that hasn't happened since the 1970s when we managed water quite differently than we do now. Wow. It's like they're kicking a can into the river almost when it comes to climate change locally and nationally. Not only how it affects our environment, but affects migratory animals. I mean, we can look at the same situation with humans where you could see 
a migration due to climate change happening already. And I read a piece by the journalist Abraham Lustgarden. He wrote a piece for the New York Times that talks about a mass migration of Americans predicted over the next 50 years due to climate change. He estimates that over 160 million people will move from coastal places to areas like the Northeast, the Upper Midwest, and the Mountain West. That's almost half the country moving due to climate change and stress on resources. If that means that New Mexico goes from 2 million people to about 10 to 15 million people, can we absorb that many people looking at resources and the environment and water rights? Can we absorb that many people operating in the way we currently are? You know, I wish that the New York Times had been doing reporting like that 10, 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. These migrations are such a reality. I mean, we need to be really having some serious conversations and plans for where people can and cannot live anymore. We're way past the time to be coming up with some good plans. (laughs) You know, for New Mexico, we definitely cannot absorb a huge population. You know, cities do tend to be pretty water efficient. Here in New Mexico, the vast majority of the water that's used is by agriculture. So... That's the serious conversation we need to have, too. It it is, because obviously we look at the stress it will put on resources, but then we look at the culture changing. We have two million people who live here. Do you mean to tell me that even in five years, it could be a million and a half, two million people coming? How that not only affects the resources, but affects the culture, which in turn affects the politics. Are there key nuanced differences to each region of the state when it comes to climate change and resources that we should be paying attention to? One of the things that I had not really paid attention to until the last couple of years is for a place like Doña Ana County Mm. and along the border in southern New Mexico, there are water pressures, especially because of the heavy agricultural use down there. But the big thing to be thinking about, I think, is also the fact that we're seeing more extreme heat. We're seeing these hotter and longer heat waves in the summer. And if you're living in a cinder block house with maybe a swamp cooler, but maybe only fans, you know, a swamp cooler doesn't work above a certain temperature. And so people are basically living in houses that are uninhabitable. So how do we keep people safe and healthy as we know? that it's going to get hotter and hotter and hotter. That's a safety issue that really scares me and makes me nervous for elderly kids with asthma, people with chronic health problems. Kind of for us here in the Middle Valley, the big challenges are definitely, again, around water. Also, how do we protect agricultural lands while also increasing efficiency of how ag is using water? Yeah. Here in New Mexico, we're using more than 80% of our water goes toward agriculture. And although it's a significant part of the economy in many ways, why are we using all of this water and why do we still have a problem like childhood hunger? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like we're investing a lot in food and agriculture in terms of our water. So why is there this disconnect with hunger in New Mexico? And I think that's a connection that we need to be talking about more and figuring out how do we deal with water efficiency, protecting agricultural lands and lifestyles and culture, but also getting really serious about our hunger and food insecurity problems in New Mexico. The election's coming up. 
What should, I mean, we have a lot of issues that people are going to be considering when they cast their votes. How should people look at not only this, where we're at, but the future when it turns to casting their vote, not telling anybody who to vote for or what, but what are some things that people may be missing? Yeah, I think for me, the biggest thing um, really is what kind of a people are we? Hmm. You know, do we think about the future and what kind of environmental challenges future generations will face? Are we a people who care about protecting the most vulnerable people, climate refugees, immigrants, people whose lives are already so full of challenges? Are we a compassionate people who take care of one another and think about species beyond our own? Or are we selfish? Do we only care about ourselves and our immediate families? I think every election, when we vote, we should be thinking about who do I need to help protect and take care of versus what do I get? And I just think a lot about what kind of people we have become and who we're willing to be. Are we willing to have people basically in concentration camps along the border? Are we willing to say that we don't care about climate change or the future? I I don't know, Khalil. At the same time that I feel so grievously sad every day, I also just keep clinging on to this crazy hope that people will start, we'll all start taking better care of one another. And I think in New Mexico, we're pretty good at trying to take care of one another and I hope we can get better. Yeah, we're going to have to get better. And as far as those people who are thinking what's in it for them, uh, try 130 degree summer days. That's what's in it for you in the future. If we keep (laughs) along this path. Laura, it's always such a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you for coming on and really giving us some some really deep things to think about and the scope when it comes to the environment. But also thank you for the work that you're doing and keeping this at the front of our minds. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Khalil. I love what you guys are doing with this show. Thank you for your hard work and your good heart. So many of us are just sick of politics, sick of politicians, sick of the fighting. Debates hit an all-time low in 2020. That presidential debate pulled up that creeping embarrassment a person might get watching Jerry Springer when a guest throws a chair. Every election cycle, news organizations like ours try to cover the candidates and get those voting logistics out there to people. A couple of times over the years, I decided to talk to people who were not planning to vote instead. Most common reason they gave, they were grossed out by politicians and they didn't feel like their vote mattered. So why the disconnect? Is it just our fault? Are we bad, uncaring people as those who browbeat non-voters would have us believe? Host Khalil found this fascinating report put out by the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, an organization that for nearly 250 years has been tasked with generating new ideas. The Academy sent researchers to travel the United States and talk with disappointed and frustrated citizens. They came up with a bunch of recommendations about how we can evolve our practice of democracy and get back to where our government works for us. Here's Khalil speaking with Stephen Heinz, who co-led the project. Even though we were looking forward, it's always important to study our history. And at the end of the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia, um, as they were getting ready to vote on this 
extraordinary document, imperfect as it is. Ben Franklin rose, he was the oldest member of the Constitutional Convention, and he rose to say that he was going to vote for it, even though he wasn't sure about every one of its specific articles. But he was pretty sure it was the best that they could do. And he was going to sacrifice his own opinion of things he might not agree with in favor of the common good of the overall document itself. And we put that quote on a screen in front of the room as we were debating the final recommendations to kind of remind everybody that, you know, we don't have to exactly agree on every part, but it is the work as a whole that is important to get before the American people. I love that. And and I feel that the Constitution is meant to be an evolving document because the population and the citizens are constantly evolving. The world is evolving. And it's high time that the Constitution matches up. So that's why I was very excited to speak with you about some of these strategies and recommendations that you all came up with. The first recommendation you all have is to substantially enlarge the House of Representatives through federal legislation to make it and the Electoral College more representative of the nation's population. Can you break that down for my listeners a little bit? Yes, absolutely. This is part of the genius of the Constitution that I think we often underappreciate and overlook. It was a document that was created for its time, but with an understanding that the nation they were creating was going to grow, was going to change, and was going to have new challenges in the decades and centuries in the future. And so they created a document that said, this is how we're starting, and we're going to leave some things for future generations to adjust so that we maintain the representative nature of this experiment in self-government. So the House in the beginning was established with a constitutional cap of 30,000 constituents per single member of the House of Representatives. Today, every one of the 435 members of the House represent, on average, 747,000 constituents. This is something that can be changed by legislation now. So in order to make the House more representative, enlarging it is actually something that can be done relatively easily by an act of Congress. It would make the body more effective and truly more representative. And because the Electoral College is apportioned according to the size of the state delegations in the House of Representatives, increasing the size of the House would also uh, increase the size of the Electoral College and add electors from those areas that are more densely populated, which now are in a way disadvantaged in the Electoral College. You have another recommendation that says support through state legislation, independent citizen redistricting commissions in all 50 states. We've talked on our show many times. I'm sure you all had a lot of discussions about gerrymandering. You know, the core problem is that our representative democracy, of which we are justifiably proud in many respects, has become increasingly unrepresentative and undemocratic. And that puts it in peril. The steps that we recommend are to make it both more representative and more democratic. And gerrymandering, which has been a, an abuse conducted by both political parties, to create districts that favor their party candidates 
has made the Congress, again, less representative. So what we've seen in some states that have experimented with reforms like independent redistricting committees or commissions is that they actually create more balanced districts, which create more competitive elections, which bring more candidates into the process and end up having, you know, a more democratic and more representative system. Mm -hmm. When I was in school, it was mandatory that you learned and understood civics to understand how your local, your state and your federal government work. That does not seem to be the case these days. And people can feel that with the art of gerrymandering being perfected and privatized money that they are not represented. So why should they even vote? Exactly. You all have a recommendation to change federal election day to Veterans Day. That recommendation is one of several that are simply designed to make voting easier and more accessible. After all, voting is the core opportunity and responsibility of every individual citizen to really participate in shaping self-government. And when we put up barriers to voting of various kinds and we make it difficult for people to exercise that right and responsibility, we again erode the quality of our representative democracy. So among other recommendations, the idea of saying, let's make Election Day a holiday, and rather than creating a new one, let's combine this idea with honoring our veterans who, after all, have put their lives at risk. And let's do that as one step to make voting easier. I like that a lot. You also have a recommendation to make campaign finance contributions fully transparent from 501c3s to LLCs and corporations. It's one of the reasons when I talk to people why they don't want to vote. Again, their voices are being taken away from them because they don't have the money. They don't have the access. Mm -hmm. This was one of the points that came up in almost every one of our 50 listening sessions with Americans across this country. They're disgusted, frankly, with the influence of money in our politics. It's one of the reasons Americans have lost faith in their politicians and in our political institutions. And they want it to change. I mean, this was just profoundly clear. And so making the source of campaign finance absolutely transparent is just one step, but it's an important step because the citizens whose elections are being influenced by all this money have a right to know where, where is this money coming from and what, what are the interests that these funds represent. But it's only one step. The only constitutional amendment that the commission recommends is a constitutional amendment that would overturn Citizens United and make it constitutionally feasible for Congress and state legislatures to regulate campaign finance, which is something we really have to do. We have to limit the role of money and increase the role of citizens in our democracy. Mm -hmm. There's talk in the vice presidential debate. Vice President Pence posed a question to Senator Harris. Would they try to pack the Supreme Court in a way to kind of even out the votes? Mm -hmm. I know you all have a recommendation that says 18 year terms for Supreme Court justices. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Yes. What I think is important about this is that our recommendation to have 18-year term limits for justices of the Supreme Court was something that we came to well before the terribly sad death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. But it was based on the same concern. You know, in recent decades, the Supreme Court, which originally was designed to be 
above politics and outside the partisan debate in America has become another battleground of partisan politics. And if you have term limits and you make the requirement that the terms have regular appointments, meaning that each two-year session of Congress, one term would expire and the need to fill it would occur, then a president in four years could only nominate two. So over time, you'd have more presidents involved in nominating, you'd have the appointments rotating on a regular basis, and you would have a less partisan Supreme Court you know, over a period of time. This has to be phased in, of course. It's not something you can do right at the outset. And I think if it were implemented, it would avoid any need to expand the size of the court and probably end the debate on expanding the size of the court. I understand. And, and finally, what do you want to leave our listeners with when it comes to this democracy, where we are currently at and where we can go? I would like to say that every one of your listeners, every one of us, are owners of this democracy, and we hold its fate in our hands. We need the citizens to push for these kinds of reforms. This is not going to happen automatically from the top down. It's really only going to happen if people are pushing from the bottom up. Mm-hmm. Again, thank you very much for coming on the show. He is Stephen Hines. He is the co-chair of Our Common Purpose, Reinventing American Democracy for the 21st Century, a commission on the practice of democratic citizenship from the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Thank you for the conversation. Speaking of democracy, we've got an addition to our Voices Behind the Vote series. Reporter Nash Jones spoke with former Albuquerque police officer Debbie Cudis about the changes to policing she wants to see politicians affect and why she's paying attention to political races from the national to the local level. I'm Debbie Cutis. I'm a retired deputy chief from the Albuquerque Police Department and a former commander with the University of New Mexico Police Department. We are at the peaceful and beautiful duck pond at the University of New Mexico. And I chose this place because this is where my old eyes developed a new vision of policing. I retired from the Albuquerque Police Department over 20 years ago. I took a four-year break, and then I came to UNM Police, and I immediately knew that I was gonna have a bigger impact on people as a police officer here. I saw young people. I could spend time with them here, learning about their life, their troubles. They could learn there was a human behind the badge, and that's how you develop trust. Unfortunately, the Albuquerque Police Department doesn't have those luxuries. They go to a call and they can hear on the radio calls stacking up. They feel rushed. They're not able to take the time that they need to really manage that call meaningfully. The police and public have to care, trust, and respect each other to make it a safer world for everybody. And you can see it's not happening. If there's fear on both sides of the badge, it's not going to end well. We need to change our terminology, the war on crimes, the war on drugs. We are not at war with anybody. They are dressing like they are, driving up in tanks like they are, but we're not at war with our community and that mentality needs to stop. When we speak of racial injustice and what I'm seeing in Albuquerque and throughout the nation, it's hard for me to watch. It makes me sad. It makes me sick to my stomach. 
and I'm not seeing the reform that we need yet. I don't think politicians can create laws to develop trust between police and the community. They could do police reform. They can say no more chokeholds unless you are dying and that is your last resort. So they can make certain things illegal, but the trust issue has got to be worked on every minute by the police and the community at every contact. I wish politicians <laughs> would work with each other to work on these reforms, and we don't see that. I mean, we saw the House do it, and we saw it stopped at the Senate. That's why people keep protesting. They don't see anything changing. The issues at the top of my mind as we approach election this year. My number one is day one, I want those kids out of the cages. We have no idea what their life is like and how they're gonna come out of this. It's not gonna be good. And guess who has to deal with it when they come out? The police, and we're not ready for that. I have from top to bottom, in mind when I vote. I just don't look at the president. I look at our state legislatures, state senators, because they make important decisions as well. So you're not just voting for one person. As we can see, this vote was not only for a president, but for three Supreme Court seats. I have never missed a vote. I even vote in school elections. Voting is important. And to miss that opportunity is unconscionable, really, to me. I have contacted people that I know never voted before. I am taking some of them with me, but they fought it. They are like, what's the difference? My vote doesn't make a difference, but uh, I'm picking them up. And, you know, I haven't told them who to vote for. I'm just trying to make them see how important voting is. No More Normal is brought to you by your New Mexico government, a collaboration between KUNM, New Mexico PBS, and the Santa Fe Reporter. Funding for our coverage comes from the New Mexico Local News Fund, the Kellogg Foundation, and KUNM listeners like you. Support for public media provided by the Thornburg Foundation. Hear us each week on KUNM Sundays at 11 a.m. Find past episodes online at KUNM.org or wherever you look for podcasts. A fly stole the show from the Veep candidates during the most recent debate. And a week before that, the presidential candidates didn't bring many, any, issues to the table. But we've got you covered. During this hour, we're pausing a hectic news world to talk about what's really at stake in this election. For the second half of the show, we're going to reflect on quality health care and how racism became a campaign tactic. Stick with Nimono. People are fighting to preserve their voting rights this year. Last week's episode was all about it. Continuing that conversation, here's Khalil. Neil Rucker is policy counsel heading up voting rights work at the New Mexico chapter of the ATLU. Nia, thanks for being with me. Well, thank you for having me. Now, we heard the president talking about having people observe the polls. Were you hearing that the militia will possibly be trying to observe polls? Far right extremists will be trying to observe the polls and people are fearing that they may lead to some sort of voter suppression or voter intimidation. Have you heard anything like that in the state, the southern part of the state? And if so, what is being done in preparation for that? 
that is voter suppression, right? Especially in the ways that are being described as the ways to observe the vote. And it sounds threatening to most of us, right, who are, are listening to that. We're involved with a number of our other nonprofits, such as Common Cause and some other organizations, to both staff a hotline, uh, 1-866-OUR-VOTE, to have attorneys who are available in case anybody's having any issues with voting or has questions. Our election protection watchers they're in a nonpartisan effort. If somebody, for example, is blocking an entrance, is harassing voters, they could be reported to our election protection workers or also to the, the county clerk. That should not be happening. Yeah. That That is very concerning, the way that election watching, which should be to make sure that everyone votes and is encouraged to vote in the safest way possible is being turned on its head. For those who don't feel comfortable going to a polling site to vote, we do encourage people to vote by mail. In New Mexico, if you've been convicted of a felony but served your time and finished up with everything in court, you can register to vote again. And it seems like a lot of people still don't know this. Is that something that the ACLU is working on and how? Yes, we are definitely involved in that effort to make sure that people with felony convictions can still vote. There is a lot of misinformation about that. But once a person has completed their sentence and is off probation, a person can go and, and register to vote. Some clerks might require showing of discharge papers. We are way ahead in that respect. And it is important that every person who can vote exercises that right to vote. Are there enough polling locations for New Mexicans to be able to get to to at least turn in their mail-in ballot? Certainly people can turn their ballots back in. They can vote early, you know, at, at many locations that are voting convenience centers throughout different counties. We also have the opportunity to either mail your ballot back in or walk it into your county clerk. And if there are any irregularities locally with an election, like contested local contests, what will the ACLU here in New Mexico do? We also have an amazing team of lawyers who are preparing for any possibility of irregularities. So our national ACLU has prepared some litigation pointers based on experience. We're preparing for that. How can everyone who's listening help? First thing, definitely make sure that you're registered to vote and have a plan. Make sure that you have a plan of how you want to vote, what is the best way for you to vote and do so safely. Um, Secondly, if you're interested in joining our efforts, we welcome everybody. And um, that website is protectthevote.net, N-E-T. I'm very impressed that you all are able to pull off a non-partisan action (laughs) in today's climate. That's absolutely wonderful. You're making magic happen. She's Nia Rucker, the policy counsel heading up voting rights work for the ACLU chapter in New Mexico. Nia, thanks again. Thank you. Quality healthcare and access to healthcare have always been critical issues. And what hurts more when you don't have healthcare coverage? The brutal ear infection or the $400 you don't have for the urgent care visit and eardrops? During the pandemic, healthcare became even more critical. Khalil spoke with Dr. Anthony Flegg, who has a lot of titles in New Mexico, including coordinator of the Native Health Initiative and director of Running Medicine. Again, thank you so much for doing this interview. First things first, 
President Trump released information that he came down with coronavirus last Thursday, a week ago. And over the weekend, he had treatment and he had drugs and special treatment that a lot of other people, normal citizens, would not have. People are upset. People are, are, are mad that he has these. And he's even gone out today as to endorse a coronavirus medication by name brand. Now, how do you feel about the president pushing this potential vaccine that he has business ties to this, these pharmaceuticals that he he's been given to kind of give people this false feeling like, Hey, if you get sick, just take these medications and you'll be fine. It's a really good question. I actually think I'm probably in in a somewhat unique position to, to give an answer. I am concerned really globally at how the public good of medicine and vaccine for the coronavirus, much like HIV, much like malaria, tuberculosis, things that are deadly diseases, that unfortunately we don't see them as public good. And it's it's a just really complex issue. I, I would love to see much more an environment where you develop something great but you can't go out and, for instance, charge for the coronavirus vaccine a price that only, you know, the top echelon economically um, countries or even people within a country, you know, are going to have access to it. And there's been a movement for a while for one particularly is universities allied for essential medicine. Basically, universities that say, look, if medicine X that is a life-saving medicine for something like coronavirus, TB, et cetera, is developed at our university and reminds you that that means it's public funds yeah. that develop this thing. We're not just going to go sell it to the highest bidder that then puts it on the private market at a ridiculous price that it's essentially unavailable to most of the world's population. So mm-hmm. I think the microcosm of, of what President Trump is able to access within our country is when you zoom out even further and say, what is the U.S. going to be able to afford versus Sub-Saharan Africa versus South America, then a whole other level of inequity. I I don't think political leaders should be in any way promoting things that are in their financial interest, of course. Let public health people, let the CDC make a recommendation. If they clearly feel that the science is behind one treatment or one vaccine, let them do that. We know that our president is not good at keeping his mouth closed on just about any issue and, and yeah. would tell you and I that he's the expert in literally A to Z and anything else, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it should be the CDC, it should be Dr. Bouncy coming out and saying, you know, we, the CDC is going to back this medicine and hopefully is saying that after also some more negotiations of like, is this actually going to be accessible to the poorest, the wealthiest, and everyone in between, at least within our country. Earlier in the year, I had the opportunity and the privilege to talk to President Jonathan Nez of the Navajo Nation and what he was telling me of the situation that is going on on native lands and healthcare. I think a lot of people would be shocked, particularly people who aren't familiar with the Southwest and how it plays out. When it comes to healthcare and people of color, is there a bias when it comes to the treatment? Yeah, that's a deep question. I think the way that I would frame it as a white male, myself, a family physician, 
whose work centers on improving health in our native communities, in our communities of color, in our rural communities, in the forgotten places, is that, first of all, the majority of what makes us healthy or not healthy has nothing to do with people like me. I hate to blow my own kind of ego on that, but the majority of what makes us healthy or not healthy is are the conditions in which we live, the access to employment, having healthy air to breathe, having money to put healthy food on the table, having a safe neighborhood in which I can exercise in, and living without the direct effects of racism, which basically means that anyone who is not white unfortunately loses from day one of life. The second thing I would then say is that white supremacy culture as a disease that we still have not gotten serious, even in 2020, mm-hmm. of really addressing what it would look like to treat white supremacy. We're instead focusing on one of its many symptoms, which is racism. And racism is just like, you know, any disease has symptoms. It's the cough, but what's causing the cough, the pneumonia, is the thing we really still are, are frightened, white folks particularly, to even think about what that would look like of actually leveling the playing field. So brown bodies, black bodies, lesbian bodies, and anyone that doesn't fit the category of privilege yeah. are deemed less important. It should surprise us no more than, gosh, I wonder who's going to really suffer in New Orleans when Katrina hits. This is, a, this is a natural disaster of 2020. It simply lays clear anyone who had a facade that we have given real attention to equity in our society. Forget equity in healthcare or even equity in health, but this equity as a real serious issue would hopefully have their eyes open by who's affected by COVID. How does this, this idea of white supremacy and this bias that's here in this country, how does that combine with the policies that lawmakers make when it comes to health? I think the, the policies we create are within the context of white supremacy and every system is perfectly designed to get the results it gets. Mm-hmm. There's a famous quote of a systems theorist that the U.S. ignored and he went over and made the Japanese car companies number one by, by that exact idea. So our, our system is perfectly designed to get worse outcomes on any level and measure from education to wealth to health for those who are not white. If we are willing to believe that white supremacy really is the underlying premise on which our society is built. It's had some band-aids to it and some things to make it less overt and let's not anymore commit genocide. Let's, Let's not enslave half of our country but we still have never dealt with that the underlying kind of premise is still there. We've just gotten better at covering up. I would just say that the policies that we create have that undertone to them. And unfortunately, I don't see enough policies that really tell me that we're interested in creating a new narrative. You also teach at the University of New Mexico Department of Family Community Medicine and the College of Population Health. Within that, when you're teaching your, your students, these are soon to be medical professionals, do you teach them about the inequities that are out there, how to pay attention to them, what type of biases they may want to address within themselves before they continue? More and more so. That is a central theme of my 
teaching and my education that we can't any longer live in a facade that says we don't have blinders on, that we're truly our own best judge of can we really know that we're treating people equally? How do we know those implicit biases? Who didn't get into the med school in the first place and why aren't they here and why is that again so predictably around income, around race, ethnicity? It needs to be kind of the new paradigm of how we teach around health and our health professionals of the future. We started orientation this year with very, very deep and not necessarily even safe, but just vulnerable conversations around racism, hmm. um, human dignity around who does and, and doesn't get affected by, in this moment, COVID. So really, like your introduction to the profession, the fraternity of medicine isn't a rah-rah. It's like, no, we've got a lot of work to do. Roll up your sleeves, and we're not going to pat each other on the back. We're going to say the system ain't working, and, and we need to be a part of fixing it. He is Dr. Anthony Flagg. He teaches at the University of New Mexico Department of Family and Community Medicine and College of Population Health, Dr. Flagg. Thank you so much for being with me. Really appreciate it. Hey, it's been my pleasure and good health to everyone out there. Our guest is Barbara Jordan. She is an organizer with the Black New Mexico Movement, and she's up in Rio Rancho. Good morning, Barbara. Good morning. You know, I think most of our listeners are probably familiar with the Rio Rancho area, but could you describe it a little bit for us? Rio Rancho is a suburban area, and we only have about 2.2% African Americans here, but all of us should feel welcome. So overall, the city is really quiet. We don't have that much going on, but when I do go out, I do get the looks and stares, you know, even coming to my home or at a store. I came here to Rio Rancho as my last assignment to retire out of the Air Force. I was stationed at Kirtland Air Force Base, and when I got here, I was under the impression that I had found, you know, like a nice place to live and raise my child for him to have his high school years. I attended to cover the September 12th Black New Mexico Movement demonstration. Mm-hmm. We were met with so much anger, mm-hmm. you know, from uh, Trump supporters who were trying to make it a political event. People may have heard me say, my life is not political. Our Black lives are not a political statement, but they tried to make it about that. We were threatened people threatened to do stuff to our vehicles so we couldn't even leave. Yeah, and it's it's not lost on me that what we were looking at was a Black New Mexico movement voter registration drive. There's two tables, yeah. there's people making speeches in a little PA, there's what, maybe 50 people out there in support exactly. of you? And the counter, the counter to this is just about a full-on Trump rally. Like, it's not like we were looking at a Biden rally versus a Trump rally. We're looking at a rally for racial justice versus a Trump rally. Right, exactly. We were there to get people to register to vote, fill out their census, and giving uplifting motivational speeches. I'm assuming just because the event was put on by Black New Mexico movement, that's where the problem lies. You know what I'm saying? So these people are out here with their Trump pin sign, and they're trying to convert their American flag into their racist symbol. Well, no, that's not going to happen because that's my flag. 
you know, I served this country for 20 plus years. So that's my flag. And they love to use the word patriot. And I'm like, how, where? Because last time I remember I was the one in Afghanistan fighting for this country. You know, I was the one over there getting shot at with bombs going off to support this country, not the people who are over there holding up a Trump Pence flag. So that is very disgusting to me that they would do that. If our presence bothers them that much, just our mere presence bothers them. Just imagine what they do day to day to people of color. I cannot, I cannot even fathom it. Imagine if one of them is a teacher, what my child, what other people of color have to go through in the classroom. And so they really showed me what Rio Rancho is all about. They showed me the racism here, and we're going to continue to fight against the racism here no matter what. I'm not going anywhere. I'm not hiding out. We're going to be in Rio Rancho as many times as it takes. We're going to fight for equality. This is a human issue. It's not a political issue. One thing that's happening right now that I'm hearing a lot of people talk about is Biden and Harris, are these really the people who are going to enact the kind of policy changes that we need to see? And I'm so glad that you asked this question. So we do know that Harris and Biden have supported bills. Biden has supported bills. Harris, which is attorney general, have prosecuted a lot of black males. But here's the thing. I tell people we have to get back into the driver's seat of politics, right? Mm -hmm. We have just let things go. We have let this administration do whatever they want. And we have to get back into the driver's seat of our politics. And that starts with our local government on up. So once we assert ourselves and make the demands for what we want, they have no choice but to invoke that change that we want and we need to see as American people. But right now we have an administration that's in the office that is not even open to the idea of equality, and that's a problem. You know, he plays to his racist base, and we can't have that anymore. We have to at least move that administration out so that we have someone in the office who is willing to listen to the American people. We have to be the driving force for our lives. We don't have the luxury of sitting back and being complacent anymore. I am calling on all people of color for all allies to make a change in this administration so that we can have tackle these social injustice issues and finally have equality for people of color. And how does it feel, you know, having done so much military service and put your life on the line to then have a commander in chief, to have a president who openly signaling racism? Yes, it's a slap in the face, you know is so disheartening because it just lets me know that all the efforts that I put forth for this America, it just means nothing because at the end of the day, when I walk out, I'm just another black person, you know, just another black person who has to watch their back at all times. Now, what are some things that you think people need to look for candidates to be talking about? What are some policies you think people need to be aware of and that need to be part of campaigns on a local level or national level? 
the important things that I see are, are we going to recognize implicit bias in the medical community? What are we going to do about that? Are they talking about those issues? Are we going to recognize that our schools in the lower economic areas that they need money too for improvement? We need people in there who are about uplifting the education system as a whole from the private school to the charter school down to the, the school in the lower economic areas. Those schools need to be lifted up as well, not just the privileged kids. That in itself is a form of racism because they're afforded the better education because they're in the better area. So that's very dear to me. Mental health is very dear to me. Are they talking about mental health in these schools? Because maybe if we had mental health providers in the school instead of police officers, that these kids who are being bullied wouldn't resort to shooting up the school. Mm. Maybe that. Maybe we can normalize that. We need to get them the help that they need all the way. We have to go all the way with these children. If they confide in a mental health care worker, uh, for example, and they're having issues at home, we need to help that child all the way, not just be them at the graces of the system. Mm -hmm. You know, we have to get involved almost have that village-type mentality. So those are the issues that are dear to me, of course, along with systemic racism, defunding the police. People hate to see the word defund, but I often re-explain it. Like, why would I continue to put money into a system that is killing my black and brown brothers and sisters? Why would we do that? We need to get back to that community-type policing, and I just don't see why any police department needs militarized weapons. I don't understand it, and I don't see it. If you had one last thing to say about what's at stake in this election as people are considering whether they're going to vote, what would it be? I would have to say that our lives are at stake. Mm. Black lives People of color lives are a state. We have to get out there and we have got to vote. It's not the best choices, but we have to make a move to begin to dismantle the blatant open racism that has integrated this administration and has empowered these races to come out in droves and go back to almost Jim Crow type living. For those people to say on September 12th, get out of our city reminded me of Jim Crow days. And it reminded me that racism has never went away. It only evolves. Okay. And so we have got to get out there and vote and stay in the driver's seat of our cities, stay in the driver's seat of our country and dismantle this systemic racist system from the top down and from the bottom up. We have got to do it, guys. We have got to do it. Our lives depend on it. All right. Well, she is Barbara Jordan. She is the organizer in Rio Rancho for the Black New Mexico Movement. I want to thank you so much for being on our show today, Barbara. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. That's it for this week. And don't worry, Khalil will be back soon. Special thanks to Ty Bannerman and Kaveh Movahead for the editing help this week and to Ace reporter Nash Jones for their voter profile. The artwork online for this week's episode comes from Burt Benali. Thanks to Cheo, Jazztone, the producer, Dom Life, and Olad Records for providing music for the show. Kaki, Pokya Sesya, and Begoa produced some of the show's themes. 
This show is hosted and produced by Khalil Ekelona and executive produced by yours truly. I'm Marisa DeMarco from everyone here on the Numono team. Thanks for listening. 